Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas was a good old boy from Yakima, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest. He was on the court longer than any other justice, issued the most opinions and dissents, and authored 32 books. He was also threatened with impeachment more than any justice. Douglas was an environmentalist, civil libertarian, defender of the First Amendment and the right to privacy. Throughout his life, he was an avid hiker, outdoorsman, mountain climber, and nature lover. He summited most of the mountains in the Cascades. His nickname was Wild Bill. Our guest today has hiked many of the same trails as Douglas, admired the man, and even wrote a book about him. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings, everybody. We've got another podcast today, and this is going to be a fun one because I met a friend that I've known for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, mentioned that I was doing a podcast. He said, oh, I wrote a book. And I said, come on our podcast. So that's why we're here. <laughs> so from a Safeway, from a Safeway store to our podcast, uh, we're welcoming uh, Tom Holst. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, guys. Really great to be here. And and I have known Tom since I moved to the Pacific Northwest in the 80s, like 1979, 1980. And Tom was an educator. And he was my superintendent as I was, I was a school psychologist and Tom was a superintendent of schools and Peninsula School District and went on to become a, a, a policy wonk for Dan Evans in the state government. I work for, we have Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, which is our, runs our school system at the state. Uh, worked there for, for a time uh, and they uh, ended up becoming a political scientist, teaching it uh, a few college classes here and there. And there you go. Did I miss anything, Tom? No, that's uh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's right. When I, when I knew Tom as a uh, superintendent, he was always walking around with a book every week. He'd have a different book and it was always very eclectic and it'd have something to do with politics or history or law or whatever. And that's how I remember you, Tom, is just quite a quite a, an a free spirit and intellectual, and I'm assuming that you still have that uh, you have you have that disease in you right now, right? Well, it's hard to compare with you guys. I mean, you were talking about books that I go, I got, I got to check that out. You had a, a book on injustices and all these books, just in the stuff that I saw, and and the Powell memo, and I had to go back and do more research. But I, yeah, I guess I have a wide uh, range of reading that that I like to do in, in policy and law and environment and social justice yeah yeah, yeah. education uh, your your book is the footpath of justice uh, of, of justice william o douglas and it's um a legacy of place and you know i frankly i didn't know much about william <laughs> william o douglas De greg did greg knew all oh. about him. i know oh, he, okay. he, he was spouting off all about him but uh this is, I guess the book is not an autobiography, it's not a biography of William O. Douglas. It's kind of this um, eclectic mix of your life, your love and passion for hiking, and also your love and passion for government and the law and Supreme Court. And I, I don't know, you describe it, you describe it. 
No, that's and it, 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 the word eclectic has been used before. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of people who read it before I wrote it said, Tom, Tom take out that memoir uh, part. And actually, I had read um, Winter Brothers by Doig, if you read any of Doig at all. No. And he uh, he's quite a writer from Montana, written a lot of books, just died recently. But in Winter Brothers, he he goes to Port Townsend and retraces kind of the life and steps of a guy named Swan, who was there in 1853. And Swan was a he was a teacher. He was a pioneer. He was a farmer, you know, one of those Renaissance guys who lived in Washington Territory in the 1850s. And uh, Doig sort of followed his life, you know, 100, uh, 150 years later. And so I kind of followed that format, except I, I basically retraced uh, Douglas's steps and his uh, trails pretty much around the Pacific Northwest and uh, found it fulfilling. So there's this kind of linkage between policy, prose, and place, or word and wilderness. You know, there's a lot of ways to, to describe uh, kind of that. But Douglas was a unique character who was a Washingtonian, and I read a little bit of his jurisprudence when I was in graduate school, a little bit even as an undergrad, but didn't think much of it. He Back in those days, he wrote an article in Playboy, and just like Carter, got took a lot of criticism for writing in Playboy. Uh, but he said, I wanted to reach the minds of the young, you know, and so he, he wrote it. And so I was slightly aware of Douglas. Uh, just as a student, but I really became much more interested when I realized that he took uh, his love of hiking in the outdoors through political action to actually public policy. And that's kind of the chain of events. So someone, just to give you an example, in the chapter on the CNO Canal is a good example, and that's on the East Coast. So the CNO Canal was the old CNO Canal, 350 miles long, that ran during the 19th century and had uh, all these locks and the canal boats would run along being pulled by mules. Well, by our century or the last century, that canal just was lying there and people would use the towpath recreationally. But the Washington Post wrote an article, and I, I tell this story in the book, the Washington Post wrote an article and said, we should pave that over. It should be a parkway. And Douglas and Brandeis and others used that recreationally for, for years. And he said, anyone that thinks that that should be paved over should walk with me the entire distance. And the entire distance uh, of, of the canal then was 180 miles. And so the, the uh, Washington Post editors actually joined Douglas on that hike. And so did a lot of wilderness luminaries. This was in eight, 1954. And at the end of that hike, 100,000 people, this was on a news, 100,000 people came out to Georgetown where the canal ends there at Lock One. 100,000 people came out, cheered Douglas and the other hikers. And the Washington Post said, we withdraw our support of a parkway through there. And later it became um, a national park. And now it's 10th in the, it's 10th in the nation on the attendance uh, as a national park. And people can go out there in the winter, they can ice skate on the canal, they can bike ride. And if you ever get a chance to go to DC, you should go 5, 10, 15, 20 miles up that canal. Anyway, that was an example of what Douglas did. So in our own state, he did a similar walk along the Pacific Beach, which is now a wilderness area. He did the same thing at uh, Glacier Peak Wilderness. 
And he did these things all over the country by uh, a couple of other biographers and I, uh, Adam Sowards is one, and uh, Judge, um, McHugh, Judge McCune on the Ninth Circuit, who just wrote a book called Citizen Justice, a biography. We all agree that through his activism, he probably saved something like 32 areas for national parks and wilderness areas. And so uh, those things really interest, they intrigued me that a guy sitting on the high court could have, uh, I guess I can't use the word <laughs> balls, uh, to step out of his robes and be a citizen activist on behalf of the environment. Yeah, you can you can definitely use the word balls. Uh, the <laughs> the Back to the knee, everybody knows Highway 101 snakes up all through the coast, all through the coast, all through the coast. And, and if you don't know Washington State, when you get into Washington State, Astoria, all of a sudden, it's that big loop around the um, Olympic That's National right. Park, which is wild. I mean, I think the first right. white man transversed the Olympic National Mountains in 45 or something. That's right. And they wanted to put a major freeway through the whole thing and, and literally destroy this probably the longest pristine area of water ocean front uh, in the country. And he did the exact he did exactly what you said with the canal. He said, I'm going to he, he got he got in his white Mercedes. He, he organized hikes. He took people on this area and said, this is valuable. This is deserves to be uh, saved. And he saved it. That's right. That's exactly right, Pat. And the same the same story, again, it's one of the 32 areas or something. Truman had bought that strip. Well, Roosevelt under in 37 created the uh, Olympic National Park. And then Truman, give him credit, bought that strip along the coast, which is about 60 miles. And it runs from uh, Ozette all the way down to the whole river there. And so, but that was just sitting there. And like you said, they want a group wanted to pave that over the highway department and others, because we wanted to be like Oregon, you know, and have this beautiful uh, coast that we can drive in our automobile. And Douglas said, shouldn't there be some places that are saved as wilderness that you can only get there by walking? And so he did, there was a, a hike in 58. So four years after the CNO canal hike in 58, he led the same luminaries, and there's a you can get a movie on of that on YouTube hmm. uh, of that of that hike. And then he did it again in '64 because there was still interest in in as late as '64. But finally, uh, after the two hikes, he uh, he was successful uh, along with others in getting that declared wilderness. And so now, and I don't know if you've done that hike, but I'll tell you, talk about a pristine walk. That's the other thing we should do when you come out come out here, Greg is take you out to uh, Third Beach. And it, it may be a little bit like Maine or, or the East Coast, but I'll tell you, it's rough, rough coastline. You get a you get a, a feeling of what it's like on the West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island, which is one of the top 50 yeah. hikes in the world. But we have that here in Washington State, thanks to Douglas. Is that the one that you have to worry about the uh, the tides coming yes. in and out as you're doing your hikes? And Yeah, you have to have a tide chart. We, we slept one night. We had the chart and we thought we were fine but it came within about three three feet of our <laughs> bags. <laughs> Greg are you a hiker I'm a walker but I have a question for both of you I mean yeah. uh what fascinates me is you know I I approach Douglas from a political perspective I was a youngster sure um, oh cool I thought he was the uh greatest thing in the world because 
Yeah. He's iconoclastic. Uh, he was yep. a supporter of civil rights. Uh, yes. He was a First Amendment absolutist. When I was That's a college right. student, I thought that was the cat's meow. I mean, yep. someone that believes in the absolute universality of the right to free speech. And of course, that's not a popular judicial position. It hasn't been, hadn't been since the uh, the uh, fire in a uh, uh, movie theater uh, example. Yeah. But uh, he was an absolutist, and I listened to this. My, I didn't know he was such an environmentalist. I knew he was an environmentalist, but I didn't know he was a hiker. Yeah. But this view of the, of the world that he had, I'm trying to connect that with his universalism, his absolutism about civil rights. I don't know if it goes back to the U.S. Uh, the mythology of the Wild West. I don't know what it goes back to. You have, do you have any thoughts about that? No, that, that that's such a great question, and you've described him very well. And I, 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 I'm afraid when I was in, when I first read his opinions as a as a college student, I wasn't quite. I wouldn't describe myself as an absolutist. I've kind of moved that direction more now. So it's interesting that you were intrigued by his jurisprudence then, uh, as as we we all should be now. But yet he, you know, he grew up in Yakima, Washington. So the story about Douglas having polio. Now, some his one of his biographers said no, he he had it really wasn't polio, and he built that up and and played that up because of Roosevelt's polio. But Douglas had an infantile sickness that made him very 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 sick, and he saw himself as very puny uh, in grade school. And so he would walk. Uh, someone said, if you strengthen your legs, you you'll build yourself up and be strong. And so he started walking around Yakima, and then he gradually walked from. Yakima, you haven't been in Yakima, Greg, but Pat has. If you walk from Yakima, then across the Natchez River, the first hill there is called Sela Gap. And it's maybe 900 feet up. It's a big hill that rings the city of, of Yakima. And he walked up that hill. And then gradually he walked from Yakima all the way into the Cascade Mountains, which was, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles. And as a teenager, he would walk uh, miles and miles and miles from when he was 12, 13 years old, all the way until he went to Whitman College. And so he became also, in terms of, he was an English major uh, at Whitman College, and he became really interested in John Muir, read all of John Muir's works, and Aldo Leopold, was he was a big fan of Leopold, and many other wilderness writers. So he kind of linked, he kind of linked his, um, his passion for hiking in the wilderness to public policy uh, of Muir. And so then I think that, and he says in, in um, Go East, Young Man is, uh, you know, one of his biographical works. And then the other one that made, it was a bestseller is called Of Men and Mountains. He wrote, thir he wrote 30, how many I say I say 32, and I have all of them. Others say he wrote more, but it depends on whether you call some of the lectures that he gave and some of the other things in small, almost pamphlets, whether you call them a book or uh, Wild Men, Of Men and Mountains, The Court Years, yeah. Beyond the Himalayas. Beyond the Himalayas, uh, right. Uh, Citizen Justice, Letters of Douglas, Strange Lands, Friendly People, Russian Journey. Uh, you know, it, he wrote a lot. Do you know that? Or are you reading from something? <laughs> I'm I, I'm going to splash that up on our screen. I I have I went through and just captured a few of his books off Amazon. And I couldn't believe how many he wrote. 
Yeah, that's right. No, he was prolific. And uh, by the way, I'll just add for you guys, uh, I, a lot of this stuff I did because it's a hiking book. And I was, like you said, I was thinking as I was walking on the trails. But to spend time in his papers in the manuscript division at the Library of Congress is unbelievable. It's unbelievable because you go in there and they have his 1200 Supreme Court opinions, uh, Greg, along with his uh, dissents. He's the he was wrote the most opinions anybody on the court, as well as the most dissents of anyone on the court, including the Dennis case about communists. If you may remember, maybe you've read that case yeah, on, first, on the First yeah. Amendment. Yeah, you're probably well. That was a bold. That was a very bold thing to do at the time. In fifty, very courageous with McCarthyism yeah. and anti-communism running. It was that, very that, for me, that was a measuring stick of absolutism. If you believe in free speech, you believe in free speech. That's right. You know, even even in case of Nazis and Cicero, uh, you know, it's free speech. It's absolute. I've modified my view since then. I think basically uh, most of the people that advocated accepting him, most of the people that advocate free speech are really uh, hypocrites. I mean, I don't think they really believe in it. They believe in it when they want to believe in it. Right. Uh, as they did in the McCarthy era. And as they're doing today, I mean, we don't have, yeah. how can you have free speech today when you have uh, media domination by uh, with money? But, yeah. but he believed right. in it. He really believed in it. I'm wondering if maybe the this West Coastism, this idea of, of hiking, of open spaces, of yeah. having room around you, don't bother me. This is my space. Don't don't interfere with it. That concept of, uh, of right, which uh, was one of my PhD dissertation uh, uh, questions, that concept flows out of being uh, people not bumping into each other, people having room, uh, allowing for other people. Uh, That's so Douglasian, Greg. That is absolutely on target. That you you hit it. That's right. He 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 believed in a marketplace of ideas. So whether it's in the academy or on the on the street, and it all related to uh, you put it so well. Open spaces openness of mind, openness of spaces. And that's why I tied it into a sense of place or a sense of space. I think mm -hmm. the linkage between the, the environment uh, and uh, intellectual freedom or, or intellectual freedom and bodily freedom to go anywhere, wilderness, all those things tie together. It's a powerful concept that we uh, lose sight of today. Do you, you know, think I'm, there are I'm, any advocates? Are there any advocates? I mean, are there people in public... Uh... In in the public eye today, that uh, are uh, uh, Douglasonian. I mean, is there anyone that you see admire that you think keep that tradition alive? There's not very many, and I'll tell you, <laughs> Pat, you'll be interested in this too. There's a guy who, uh, and you guys will be honorary members. There's a group called the Pacific Northwest William O. Douglas Society. Right. And, and let me just put put a word in there about that. Now, you guys will be honorary members as of as of today. Uh, <laughs> Kathy Douglas was his last wife, and he met her in a bar. Douglas met, and he was a bit of a womanizer. He met yeah. her in a bar in uh, Oregon when she was 25, 26. He was in his 60s, and they married. Well, Kathy, uh, he put her, he kind of put her through law school. She got through law school by studying at his place in Goose Prairie, Washington. And then he, and then, uh, of course, later he died in 1980. But Kathy Douglas became a very excellent lawyer in her own right in Boston, remarried, has children, and then became president of the Supreme Court uh, Literary Society. And so she invited, um, she invited uh, 
a guy by the name of Mike Hoagie, Pat, who is the attorney for Seattle Public Schools back in the oh, day. Goodness. Then he, wow. then he went to work for Perkins Coie, and he argued and won a Supreme Court case uh, before the United States Supreme Court. Well, he was a Doug, just like you, uh, Greg, and I, he was a Douglas devotee because he grew up in Yakima. Mike did. He ended up buying the Douglas cabin in Goose Prairie. So a bunch of us went back for the 75th anniversary. Kathy Douglas invited a bunch of us for the... Uh, anniversary of his appointment to the court by Roosevelt 75 years before and we went we went into the court and Lawrence tribe was there speaking and all these luminaries and and uh uh clerks from the justice and law school professors and east coast luminaries and and even uh, chief justice uh, uh uh welcomed us and and we had a, a drink with justice Breyer out in the veranda later and so uh, they said, well, this will be the last time we honor Justice Douglas. And Mike Hoagie and I said, not in your life. We're going to continue his legacy in the Pacific Northwest. So we created this Pacific Northwest William O. Douglas Society. <laughs> and we meet in Goose Prairie and at the museum in Yakima. In fact, we just had a major Douglas Award dinner. We gave Sally, um, former Secretary of the Interior, uh, uh, What's your last Sally? Uh, an on, on Douglas, the Douglas Award, the first Douglas Award, and we have an essay contest. So that's not a very good answer to you. I I would say there's very few people, like if any, quite like Douglas, who had that platform, and had his ideas and his guts in terms of whether he wrote a book, or he went down to the he went down to the he went all over the country to save these precious areas. Another one, I went and did a book talk myself down uh, on in Arkansas on the, on the river down there, uh, the Buffalo River. And as a result of his canoe trip and his hike and his talk down there, if you can imagine in the Deep South, that was the first national river added to the national river system. So, you know, there's all these stories about the Red River. He did the same thing in the Red River. Uh, so, no, there isn't anybody quite like him. Uh, and that's why, and and that's why I try to keep that legacy alive, whether it's writing or thanks to you guys getting on your uh, program here. You know, you know the um, Prairie Goose Cabin, which he built, or you know, Goose Prairie, uh, yes, Goose Prairie. I have a picture of it. They said he was, he would, he would go there frequently to either write or entertain girlfriends or or wives or whatever. But uh, yes, that's right. There, there was a one story I, I don't know if that was in your book but it might as, as i was doing background on this podcast yes with the cambodian bombing if you remember richard nixon was bombing yes, that's cambodia, right and he shouldn't have been and it was illegal and right. he was dropping more bombs in cambodia than all world war ii world war, you know it was just a couple of pilots you know had problems of just daily doing carpet bombing and they kind of were wanting to refuse it came to the supreme court and they decided should they should they have a cease and desist for the the Nixon bombing. So the ACLU apparently had him on speed dial right. call and tracked him down with his fourth wife. Uh, he's sixty seven, she's twenty three, and they're out at Goose, uh, you know, at their at the lodge in Yakima. That's right. That's right. And they said, "Would you please, um, you know, do a cease and desist?" He meets him at the cabin and gruff as hell. He was he was mean to his clerks. He was the gruff old. He clerk. was gruff. He yep. was gruff, and he said, "All right, just put it there." And uh, 
come back in an hour or two. And he wrote the brief to, to uh, have in court the next day, came back. He had, he had nailed it to a tree because he went off hiking. And then he met him the next day. They did the cease and desist. They eventually, you know, stopped it for a while, but then lost it. And then eventually Nixon created his own problems and yeah. it all worked out in the end. That, there are hundreds of stories like this of yeah. his eccentricities. That's right. And you're actually, and, Pat, you're actually mixing two stories. That, uh, 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 but one is he was out hiking up in the in the Gold Rocks wilderness. And these two lawyers came up in their street shoes and got to him and, and presented their case at the campfire. And he said, well, I need I need I need to think about this overnight. So this wasn't the bombing case. It was another case. OK. And he said, you know, I need all night uh, to think about this. So I'll see you tomorrow. They said, what? You know, we, we, we hiked all the way in here. We want you to make a decision. No, I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow. So they hiked all the way out, came all the way back in the next day and he was gone and all it was a piece of paper with a, a stick in a in a log and it said uh denied <laughs> and so that was it so but the other case which was the bombing case yeah he he famously dictated that decision to stop the bombing from a uh he heard the case in yakima actually they had all the attorneys everyone arrived in the courthouse in yakima federal courthouse in yakima and he drove back to Goose Perry, which is about 40 or 50 miles. And he stopped at the telephone, in those days, at the pay telephone at um, the lodge there, uh, and because he didn't have a telephone in Goose Perry. And he dictated over the telephone his opinion to stop the bombing in Cambodia in 1970. I'll be done. And then he, and so they call that the Douglas telephone. We're actually looking, the pinwads are actually looking for that telephone right now because it's a, it's kind of a, it should be in the National Register. He, he made, he did that a number of times, but he dictated that decision over the telephone. And then of course the court came together as a court and overruled Douglas just a few days later. So the bombing continued, as you said. Right, right. Yeah, anyway, yeah, there are lots of stories like that. Oh man. And he grew up in Yakima and was picked cherries with the migrant workers. And yes. so he developed a sense of, um, you know, esprit de corps with this population of people that would come and travel to and from. They'd come from Mexico, they'd yeah. pick, they go Generic back to workers. Mexico. Yeah, migrant workers. And the yeah. Wadleys. Uh, I do write about that as a page or so early in the book. With uh, He really had a heart for the Wadleys and, uh, you know, the workers of the world group in the early 1900s that were loggers and and orchard workers and all the rest. And he would spend time with the Wobblies. So I think, I think Greg, that's the other thing that influenced his jurisprudence later is he never lost sight of his beginning uh, or never lost sight of, of poor, the poor people that he remembered, you know, as a young kid underneath the bridges in Yakima along the, along the rivers and people just getting by. They used to drive uh, uh, his rivals and his contemporaries crazy that he wouldn't play the judicial game. And that game is one of precedent. So if you're going to have an opinion, and certainly on the Supreme Court, that's the most important opinion you can have, you're supposed to draw upon the precedents. You're supposed to delve deeply into English common law and all the historical precedents and all the uh, uh, judicial findings of the past and somehow locate your opinion. 
And he tended to locate his opinion based on social justice. That's right. And that was something that was kind of uh, a gut thing with him, though he could support it. He could support why it was rational, why it was the thing to do, why it was consistent with uh, anyone's sense of fairness and justice. But that drove him crazy because that's not the way they saw the judicial system as operating. And of course, today it's uh, we're back to a time when everybody sees it in terms of precedence and 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 the uh, uh, past decisions and so forth. So I was I remember I tried to find this before we uh, went on. I couldn't find it in my old collection of Evergreen reviews. I don't know if you know what Evergreen review was, but Grove Press was a famous publishing house in America. I think Lady Godiva's Lover and a few other breakthrough um, uh, magazines or uh, sorry books that challenged censorship in this country. They yeah. were published by Grove Press and Grove Press put out Evergreen Review and I'm a young high school kid and okay. rebellious. So I get a subscription and there is an issue which is about Douglas. Either he gave an interview or somehow it connected to it. I tried to find it. I thought you'd enjoy seeing that. Oh, I would like to see it. If Very I dig it up, I have more time. If you find it, uh, you could email me back, right? Yeah, I will. I, will I would indeed. love to but, see it. But yeah. that was very important for me when I read that story because it told the kind of story about a person that puts principle ahead of procedure. Yeah, Douglas famously said, I would rather uh, make a precedent than follow one. And uh, he also famously said, along with Holmes and Brandeis, that I don't want, uh, you know, men, not, not women, but men long dead should not uh, do our thinking for us. And so, uh, you know, I, I keep wondering what he would say with the overturning, uh, the not following precedent of Roe here recently in the case uh, out of uh, the abortion case and also some of these gun cases where they're all going, they are going, as you said, Pat and Greg, going back to English common law days and uh, the colonial times to dig out. That's part of the original originalism now, right? What did, what did the founders really mean? What was the public meaning of what the words mean? You know, it's kind of what originalism is. And, uh, you know, Douglas was not a, you know, he, he was a great dissenter along with a few others. Uh, so he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to spit in somebody's eye, right? And and uh, he just he had more courage, I think, than anybody uh, I'm I'm aware of in public life. That, that's why I ask if there are anybody if there's if you know of anyone like him, because it's very different to argue with the originalist and say, well, you 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 don't capture the meaning in 1789, 1793. You know, you don't capture that meaning. Uh, we think it meant this, and then you oh no no it meant this. Essentially, most of judicial uh, philosophy today accepts originalism, either yeah. in, in arguing against what originalists say, or or but but he didn't he he didn't think that that meant a lot. That's As right. you said, old old men don't uh, don't hold the truth for today, and yeah, uh, no one will say that today. No one that I know of will say that today. You're you're and so I miss it. That's such a great. I don't know why that. I mean, Bre uh, Breyer has written a book on a living constitution and. And others, and and the former, and and some of the like Souter, and some of the others finally stood up on the court. But it's it's hard to it's hard to find a public. Certainly, somebody running for Congress will never say say it, even on the left, right? No, exactly. Uh, it's just hard to find people uh, who will say that. And I don't know. I'm like you. I don't know what what it is. I know I'm 
not an originalist, I think, and, and Pat, you had that also as one of your questions. It's kind of like those who view the Bible, uh, you know, as literate and in, inerrant. It's almost like these old words have something over us and that we've cathect almost religious and, and, and you study philosophy, Greg. So there's something that we give to some old person's words and we almost worship them rather than mm -hmm. take them as something to look at and to consider, but it doesn't need to be binding. It doesn't need to be formulaic. That's the word I use. The current court is so formulaic. They just jump to this, uh, to what they think the words mean rather than an issue of justice. And it's it's hard for me to be, to, for people who are really schooled in the law and have a Yale education or a Harvard education can fall prey to that kind of thinking. I don't get it. Well, this is uh, Douglasonian. His views, uh, one of his opinions is, uh, well, I don't know if it's an opinion, but he, he, he spoke out in defense of, of, uh, of nature. Yes. He talked about uh, granting rights to things like trees, uh, to, yes. to things in nature, th inanimate objects, if you will. That's right. And that's popular. That's become a popular thing in the last 30, 40 years in, in, in uh, rights talks yes. to, right. to award animals rights. Today, it's commonplace. But to me, it shows some of the incoherence of rights, rights theory, because if you grant that trees have rights, and then you grant that animals have rights, and you extend this beyond human beings, then you then you you're left you're, you can't argue against giving a corporation a right, and that's something that the liberals rail against and the, and the left rails against correctly, but I think it goes to the in, really basic incoherence of rights rights theories, that it expands it beyond uh, uh, human beings. What are, what are your thoughts? It seems. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's great because I've written articles on the rights of nature. From that was the Sierra Club versus Morton, when he's and he actually said. Corporations have been given standing in the famous Chevron case, right? Um, which which was so an, antithetical to the purpose of the 14th Amendment. Anyway, so he said because corporations have rights, inanimate objects ought to have rights. So he, he said it the other way. You raise a good point. I, I think uh, as somebody who cares about the environment, uh, you know, and philosophically to be really, to really have integrity, I'd have to sit with you probably and talk about it a lot more before I made up my mind fully. Uh, it may be it may be true that it's just human human beings who should have rights. We shouldn't extend those to others. But I think Douglas was arguing in 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 the law that that uh, sort of people who have an interest in 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 a river basin, in a mountain, in a meadow. Uh, on behalf of the environment should have standing to bring an action. See, in Sierra Club, the Sierra Club was not given standing because no individual was being harmed. So the standing clause of the Constitution uh, didn't apply to them. That's what the case found, that they didn't have standing to sue to bring an action. So I think Douglas was saying there should be some way that human beings through the environment can have standing because there's it's an affront to them, the fishermen or the the hunter or the hiker or the climber should have as much right to that uh, public land as a guy that wants oil and shale and uh, you know something else from it. So that was one of the, uh, in our student essay contest, that was one of the uh, subjects of our, our essay, by the way, uh, in Yakima last year. So it's, a, it's, 
you raise a great point. I'm just going to, I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, I just, I was following the Disney, uh, wanting to put in the... Uh, yeah, that was it. The ski thing. And th that just resolved in 2020. And that started back in the, you know, way back before it, uh, 60, 60, Disney 60. died. I mean, he wanted to, yeah. Walt Disney wanted to start this. He died and they wanted to put in to, was it the Sahara Nevadas? Oh, put in a, yeah. a, a major yeah. ski, ski resort. resort. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, the, I wonder why you're saying it was uh, resolved in the 20, they, they appended that area to the national park there uh which one uh well the disney corporation just finally finally said we're done with it they're oh not I see. Gonna, they're not going to pursue it anymore it was stopped but it was stopped just recently i just read okay. an article about it. they finally said we're done with it we're not doing anything with it oh i'll be darned okay yeah, yeah. That's, that's of course it could be you know got i got it off the internet so there you go you don't know yeah, so. True. <laughs> so that's right but you know it I, I, I want to talk about you a little bit, but let's talk about Douglas. I, I wanted two things about Douglas. You got 11 minutes, Pat. <laughs> oh, I got plenty of time. So, uh, we got, he, he would, he was out hiking and he, he developed some sort of problem and needed to come to a doctor. I don't know, what do you have a foot problem? You mentioned oh, yes. in, uh -huh. in your book. And the guy, he looks like he's homeless. You know, he's just absolutely, you know, gruffy and scruffy. Uh, and the, and the uh, doctor didn't want to treat him because he thought he was just a vagrant. And right. then realized that, you know, no, he does have money and he does have means and he's Supreme Court justice and so forth. And and from then, he then takes that experience and he brings it into his legislative philosophy of, wait a second, you you can't just treat people like this, whether they have money or don't have money. The rights have to be weighed. I mean, how how far am I off am I that, Professor? What do you say? Is that close? No, no, that's right. Yeah, he was on his way to climb Mount Adams on that trip with his his boyhood buddies. That was in 1948, and he uh, his car broke down. I guess he ended up walking in Pasco and 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 got uh, some blisters on his feet and went into the doctor's office. And yeah, he he liked to dress like a vagrant or like a you know, like a, a guy that uh, that deals with horses. And and so he looked and, and he, he said, I don't know if we're going to serve the likes of you. And he said, well, on the Supreme Court, we serve paupers, poor people all the time. And he said, well, what, make, what makes you, how do you know that? He said, well, I happen to get by there once in a while or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> he, he, he did, um, he, he did have this sense of social justice and equity and concern for the poor, whether, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, there's a famous case I did mention in, in my book um, that I think about now relative to the, the gun problem that we seem to have in our country. And it was a, a lot of, a lot of um, municipalities had ordinances and laws against vagrancy. So if someone just thought you were being a vagrant, you know, you you could be picked up for vacancy and put in jail, and, and and so Douglas in the famous in a famous case was the wrote the opinion that, that ruled against that. Now that's that could someone could say that's why we have homelessness now, right on right. the streets. You know, is because of that that case. I all of a sudden it slips my mind. I mentioned it in the, in the book, but there's you haven't violated a crime by just sitting there, you know, drinking a soda pop on the side of the street and doing nothing. 
But in those days, you know, if they were based on the poor laws of, of Britain and so on, they had this horrible, horrible history. But Douglas was was famous in, in his ruling in that case. And, uh, you know, to kind of get back, you know, if I want to go and sit somewhere and and like Thoreau and and take in a, a river or a pond or sit on the mountain. I don't want someone coming and arresting me for vagrancy. But it's it's an interesting case and I think it set the stage for uh, you know you have to commit a crime and the crime has to be a legitimate crime for you to be put into jail. And so when I think, think about that with the red flag laws and other kinds of policies, now I think there's some troubling uh, there's some interesting discussion we need to have about some of those things. Well, I think, you know, I think Douglas uh, would have fit in well with uh, the founding fathers, as they're gloriously called today, the, as they're worshipped. But he would have fit in, I think, quite well, because their their belief in a Bill of Rights, their belief in a, 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 a in freedom, or if you like, uh, expanded rights, was one expansive one. one that, and they sensed that by breaking away from, the, from England, uh, they were expanding the rights of people here. Yes, and they saw the expansion of the country and the ability to travel—not uh, travel, but to go and and homestead, uh, the yeoman farmer, all of these things as positives. And they were expansive; they opened up more space around people, they gave them more freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to be where he's more of an anachronism in that sense. He would have fit in very well in today's world. He wouldn't fit in, I don't think, at all. Do you? I I think, yeah. I, I've said and I believe firmly that on the environment, on jurisprudence, on individual rights, he was um, th at least three generations ahead of his time. And uh, I, I think he would, I think his voices uh, might have, his voice today might fit in with young, just as they did in the 60s in some ways. But, oh, yeah, he would, he, he would not, his views on the court would, you know, on the Federalist Society, his views about um, the economy, his views about the environment. Yeah, they're, they're still, you know, they're still progressive. If you go back and, and, and as I went. They, won't play, they don't play nice, though. They don't play nice. They don't play nicely, no. That's right. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to pose to you is Greg and I had Tariq Ali on, who wrote a book about Churchill. Yes, and, and he was frustrated that since the Balkan Islands, Churchill is being revisited as this remarkable great leader that you know won the war and had all its integrity. And even on MSNBC a couple of weeks ago, talking about the uh, Ukrainian thing, they bring up Churchill and how he's you know we yeah. need a Churchill now. And Tariq Ali, being a Pakistani and in in, uh, in uh, Brit, um, you know, said he was he was a, he was a scoundrel. He was he was horrible. He was a war criminal. I mean, he he um, and that the revisiting him with this mythology is just is just uh, manipulation. Similar how we did with Reagan. Reagan left office. He had horrible ratings, and now Reagan is this, uh, you know. Republican Jesus kind of thing that gets gets dragged yeah. out. Yeah. And in reviewing for your podcast, because I didn't know much about Douglas, I've been watching a lot of videos and lectures. He's just pilloried on the Heritage Foundation. Oh, yeah. Because he is just the worst person ever. And he is kind of, he's got some problems. I mean, he exaggerates and he was a little bit yeah. of a blander and he, 
couldn't keep his story straight. I, I mean, he was a character. He was a real character. But it's it's amazing how he is this poster boy for everything that's wrong with our society now, which is just the opposite of what I think, what I think. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, I'd like to hear what he would say about letting Trump back on Facebook. Think, let him back on. I mean, the free speech, you know, it just what's the problem? Get over it, you know. Have a better argument. So anyway. That's very you guys. You guys did your homework. What do you think? No, that's right, Pat. Uh, he, I could tell you a quick story. He he was a womanizer. Right. And in fact, just I was ready to send my book in to get it published. And I ran into one of his girlfriends who was uh, about my age. So she was like Kathy. She was younger. She's a little bit older than I am. And uh, she said, uh, you know, I have some letters from Douglas. Would you like to read them? And I said, by all means. And they were basically love letters. Um, and so I uh, went to her house. She cooked me dinner and uh, sat there. She brought out this box, sat me in a chair. And here were, you know, a box full of letters, which I think since then she sent to the Library of Congress. I hope she has. And I almost didn't go forward with the book. It was no. kind of, it was sort of just it was sort of disappointing. I was disappointed. My first reaction was a disappointment. Then as I read through and I read them all, I think he really cared for this woman. They were very well written, they, a lot of feeling. Uh, and he was divorced at that point, so he was not married. But here's a 65-year-old guy in his 60s, whatever he was then, writing to a young woman in her 20s. And he was clearly taken with her. She was an artist. Her art was all over the world. She was a beautiful woman. Um, and but it it wasn't the picture I have. I guess you know I I don't see myself. Well, maybe I should take that back at seventy six. <laughs> Would I do that? Uh, but anyway, it. The, but the more I thought about, it, the more I read them, I said, no, I'm going to go ahead with it. But I'm just not going to deal with any of that in in my book. But he was he was a complex guy, you know. There's no doubt about it. I've met a number of the clerks. Uh, a couple of the clerks are members of the Pacific Northwest William o. Douglas Society. One lives here in Paulsbow, and they said he was a taskmaster. He was tough. Uh, occasionally, they'd go out afterwards and watch a football game or have a drink. But during the workday, he was very demanding uh, and gruff. And so, a lot of stories about the clerks, but most of them admired him tremendously. They admired his jurisprudence. They admired his guts uh, that you were talking about, Greg, um, and, and his his views, and that he was so hardworking. Uh, but he had flaws. He had foibles. Uh, and you know, we we the society has talked a lot about whether we've over aggrandized, you know, overstated. But his his legacies in the environment, on law, on public policy just overshadow, I guess. They're so powerful when you take them all together. And when I sit and sat and looked at his writing and his journals, as he, he, was, he was not just an environmentalist, he was a naturalist. If you read, if you go into his papers and look at his little books, they're little blue, like, like blue books when you took in graduate school, but they're little bound little books. And he had such an inquisitive mind about flowers and trees and he really was a naturalist in his own right. 
And as I got into his papers, I said, I, I've never seen anything like this. His, his tremendous uh, uh, ability uh, to, to have such great interests in, in wide areas of, of writing and influence and so on. I, I, you know, we're well into this podcast and I haven't talked about what I wanted to talk about most, which is you. Oh boy. And, um, what, what, and you and hiking and how hiking has changed you. I mean, I realize now in reading this book that back when I knew you as a school psychologist and you were my superintendent, you probably went up to Rainier on the weekend. And, and, you know, never, you know, never <laughs> with Jack Sinclair or, or, you know, or Roy Okamoto or Wes Pruitt or one of your old buddies, all these good people we know. And the question is, when you're hiking, I, well, uh, uh, when I'm thinking of Albert Einstein, he said that he got most of his theories from the Volksmarches where they would do these hikes in the weekend. Yeah. And yeah. that he would hike and it would it would have his mind um float around and he would talk with his friends and he I'm wondering to what extent do you think your career success, your intellectual success, your family success was fueled by the remarkable change that came upon you from being in the wilderness, being with friends going over that next mountain and having that so integrated into your life? Yeah, th thanks. I, I really appreciate that question, actually. We, we may be running it, cut me off at any at any point, but I I think there's a lot to be said for that, and that which is why I, I wrote in the way that I did. And in, in, in there somewhere, Pat, I maybe near the beginning, I talked about the power of the environment on learning and the importance of environmental learning on young lives. And so I, as a parent, I really uh, I insisted, at least on Father's Day and a few times out of the year that we get our backpacks on and go hiking as a family. I, I do think there's now pretty good data from around the world that, that the environment has an impact on early learning. And as we see kids with these handheld devices all the time and getting interested in guns rather than the outdoors, it's a, it is a, actually is a passion of mine that I think we can really, and, and this gets back to your question of what about my education philosophy, is my education philosophy is now tied in with outdoor learning. And I'm so glad to see our legislature considering uh, 50 million for outdoor camps for fifth and sixth graders uh, as a priority, as an environmental priority. Um, I think um, it, it's, it's clear to me, I, I, one other just anecdote is when I was with Educational Service District down in Olympia, I actually started what's called the Chehalis Basin Education Consortium. And it's a consortium of 20 school districts. And, and in the Chehalis Basin, we would take the students out at all grades, starting in the third or fourth, all the way through high school. And they would measure quality, water quality on various aspects of the river, whether it be in Alaska or down in, in uh, Aberdeen and Hoquiam or whatever, they would me measure the water quality, 10 characteristics of water quality, and they would report that to the uh, UW and the Department of Ecology. So they're engaged in real science. And then while they're on the river, they would do natural science and they would study uh, the river and wildlife and so on. So they would engage in 
further science study. And then they would journal, so they would gain their English. And they would take pictures and draw, and so they would be engaged in art. So really a cross-curricular environmental study. And those students would put those, those photographs and their drawings in the newspaper, so they would actually get to see their own work publicly in the Daily Olympian or the Chronicle from Centralia. So I, I, my hiking, I think, and in, in sort of reading Douglas, it, it did influence my educational philosophy. I've seen through the research and also in my own experience in the Shalis Project, and then with E3 Washington, the Environmental Education Association of Washington, which I chaired for four or five years, just the power of this kind of learning on young kids. And I think it's more important than ever that adults realize that they've got to get kids outdoors. I rambled a little bit, maybe got away from your question, Pat. But well, uh, I no, you're you're I mean you're answering the question. You, you you've got three kids, yes, and you would drag them on these hikes. <clears throat> and look at these three kids. They're remarkable. Your 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 oldest son's done McKinley. All of your kids are into the outdoors, they're all healthy and uh, you know, partially because of the impact of these. These these hikes, the exposure to the outdoors, forcing them to <laughs> forcing them at some time to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, it it it's not just it's just not a pretty mountain. It's also something that changes people. That changes how yeah. they view the world. Changes how That's they right. view people. Changes how they might respond to you know that freeway that's going through the you know the woods or whatever. So the other pet, just to add to. The other passion I have right now, and I tell my colleagues, I said, we have failed in teaching civic. You know, I teach political science, civic, and I get into these constitutional things that we've discussed here in great detail, as well as uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, and I say, we, we, we failed in teaching civics. January 6th is ample proof of that. And so it's, it, I think that the environment and early learning with kids outside teaches stewardship, which leads to citizenship and civic engagement. I honestly believe there's a there's a sequence of events there that we can have a great impact on uh, learning and policy and citizenship if, if educators would just realize it. <laughs> That's why I'm really proud of our governor and others who are who are putting these outdoor, uh, this outdoor, this 50 million for outdoor camps and so on together. We have got to integrate those things into student learning or, or we're gonna we may lose our country that's how passionate i feel about it <laughs> well sammy's just I, I do daily walks through point defiance do you know about sammy they're doing it yes they have visited it's there a, one, so of remote, of one of the most visit. remarkable high schools in the country and it's just exactly right, right here. yeah exactly right. right right here yep yep and and people are people are fighting to get into that high school yes you know i'm so proud of tacoma for doing that when I was doing all the numbers and data regarding Sammy um, Science and something Math Institute, uh, anyway, they they uh, it's an outdoor school. Um, equal proportion of poverty, ethnicity, all yeah. of the, all the demographics are a perfect representation of the of the local school district here, and yet the graduation rate, academics, it's, it's an outdoor school. They teach, they, you right. can do a two-week course on fly fishing. A friend of mine teaches it. And, oh, that's uh, great. And, and then the fact that they actually tied it. This is a great example where the school district and the parks department of the city of Tacoma all partnered to actually create that building there. It's one thing to have them there in 
tents and walking around the park. It's another thing to invest the way they did to build that school there. I, it's remarkable. It's right. a great story. I thought at the beginning, we were, when we talked about how long we'd known each other, I just wanted to say that as I was thinking, when I met you at Safeway and we were communicating and then we were getting ready for this podcast, I was thinking about some of those days back in the 80s and late 80s, maybe, and thinking about Pat, Greg. Uh, oh, he God. was not just a good professional, and, and but I thought about his great reports to the board, not just on test scores and achievement scores, but on assessments. Remarkably well done. I always look forward to those, and he did such a great job. But then he did on his own. Uh, came to me one time and said, "I think why don't we do? I call it a downstream study, Pat. But you took the initiative to call all those parents and all those kids to find out what these graduates were doing five years down the road." Right. And was, I still have one of, I still have one of those studies right here behind me in my bookcase. Because I think that provided meaning on what we were doing as those, and we Peninsula, of course, is uh, is a pretty high income, high demographic area. So you'd expect most of the kids to go to college, but it was much higher than the national average, as I remember your work there, Pat, either community college or four-year schools. But the other thing I just have to say is what Linda and I were talking about the other day. What we really appreciated and enjoyed were Pat's Christmas letters. Oh God! Those were something to behold. I don't know if you kept any of those. I think we should do a podcast. Gotta, yeah, the Christmas those. pictures for for years. My for years, my uh, my son would write the letters. Kevin, who's um, who's oh, down, really? yeah, down in Columbia right now. Actually, he just okay. just just found out that he's getting married. He proposed to his beautiful fiance down there, and uh, and now my oldest son Sean has taken over the uh, taken over the tradition. I'll have to send you this year's if I don't have it. I'll, I'll oh, I'd love to see it. Oh, that's know. great. So they they inherited your humor and your, a little, yeah. They 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 got they got a little bit of that. Hey, uh, uh, let, let, let's just tie up with saying how screwed up are things with our court? Um, how how bad is it with the new? Uh, conservative majority um, is 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 Brett Kavanaugh going to have any impact for the fact that he's such a scoundrel in the Sundance uh, documentary that says that he's absolutely cruel. No. He is. Um, have you seen it? No, but I. No, but you read about. Yeah, I read about. I read it. about it, and apparently the the smoking gun is they have a lot of phone calls and a lot of reports to the FBI of people, you know, desperately uh, expressing that he was. Uh, you know, it's one thing just to be, you know, drunk and aggressive. It's another thing to go into the bathroom and 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 try to create an erection so you can come in and assault some girl with your penis. I mean, I, you know, it's that level of depravity, that you know. level of, uh, that, you know, that goes beyond fraternity prankster stuff to a new level oh, yeah. of, of pathology that apparently this documentary... Um, barely clearly has multiple cases of his um his de his deviance uh, wow. very much of deviance yeah i really i when i saw that the other day i, I and you know we were we went down there one time we went skiing and went to the festival and really want to i really want to see that i'm really i'm very very concerned about the court as i said earlier i think it's it's sort of the federalist society is so influenced their thinking and uh, it, it's it's so narrow, and then they get. 
I think they get uh, like uh, Alito in the in the abortion case. It, it the tone of that is really upsetting. Uh, if you had a chance to read any of it, I did. Uh, I, I did. Yeah. They're sort of backed into a corner. It's like they're very defensive about being originalists, you know. Right. And they come out and snipe and snark and so on on. Yeah, they're just, they say that, oh, we get along so well in the court. It's family. And you read their writing and you know that can't be true. And and so I think if you take uh, three or four of those justices, just have serious personal problems, as you pointed out. Right, right. And, right. and then it, it shows up in their, in their writing and their jurisprudence. I, I'm very concerned for the next 15, 20 years uh, of this court. The Bremerton case, where they literally made yeah. up facts. Yeah. where Alito said yeah. that there's no suggestion these kids were uh, felt coerced to come and pray at the 50-yard line at the high school football game when the the data suggests they exactly did say that. Exactly right. You know, I mean, I, the the fact exactly that they right. can get that so wrong when it's all right there uh, strikes me as kind of, I, I don't know, what do you think, Greg? Is it all going to hell? How bad yeah, is it? Yeah, Greg, let's hear from you. I don't. I, I've never, I've never believed that they were above politics. Yeah, so right. I'm not surprised right. uh, that 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 the corruption comes out, the political corruption, the intellectual corruption comes out. Uh, it's much easier for me and my time in my life, looking back, reflecting on my 75 years, to just simply con conclude that the elites in this country are corrupt. You know, there's battle around secrets with uh, Trump, Pence, and Biden. Well, they've been stealing these things forever for the libraries. Obama, they all do it. And so I don't get worked up about any individual. I mean, they're pointing at each other now. Well, you stole these these secrets and you stole, they all do. They all do. And I think the notion that uh, there's a mythology around the courts, that the courts have always been, they've all been like Douglas, people of integrity. That's not true. The Warren court would not have been anything without Douglas, I don't think. I mean, Warren wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, uh, he wasn't that incorruptible. Douglas was incorruptible. Say what you like about him. I mean, I disagree with his views today as I've grown to disagree with him, perhaps, but he was incorruptible. He was an honest intellect. Most of them are. Most of them are opportunists. So yeah. I, I don't get worked up about it. I mean, it's 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 time the American people wake up and, and the ball's in their court. The American people have to act now. They can't rely upon lawyers or justices or democratic politicians or senators or whatever to do it for them. They're not going to do it. Yeah. You know, in the last uh, PA Times piece I wrote, I, Pat, I think I may have sent that to you, but I most of it's quotes. Uh, I, was, uh, I have it right here. It was the uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence in the Bill of Rights Part 3. Yeah. Yeah, and in, uh, most of it's a oh you actually have okay most of it's a yeah, quote. I don't have it in front of me most of it's a quote and I quote in both those the gun case and the abortion case and right. in the gun case uh, Justice uh, uh, that wrote the case uh, you know goes back into history into back into Brit British times and 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 so on and then says that oh they bear arms was was used then and they had a, they had a right to do that and he did all that history and then Breyer says actually scholars and historians if I pick if you have it there a number of a hundred thousand writings or something Pat it's a huge number would say that 
99% of the time, bare arms was used in a military context. Yeah, back in uh, 1475, historical use of the phrase bare arms, they conclude the phrase is overwhelmingly used to refer to war uh, soldering. So, yeah, you yeah. Uh, search for 1,000, uh, 120,000 found extra texts from the series. So, yeah, I, I, they're, they're, yeah. So there you they're go. Not I mean, playing that, fair. I mean, it's I rest just my case. <laughs> right. Look, look, yeah. look, guys. Look, I mean, the, the reality is that we've created a society in which it's a political issue now. It's not a judicial issue. Yes. You know, you can argue about hundred, you know, hundred thousand uh, examples from English common law where this is what they meant. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it's been so politicized that if you stop people from their guns, there's going to be a revolution. Yeah. And the question really is, how did we get to this point? How mm -hmm. do we let things get so bad? How did our our celebrated political system get us here? And how can we then find answers? And I think they have to be radical answers to fix that. So because true. the courts can't fix it. Yeah. So you know, suppose tomorrow the court loses its mind, this conservative court and says, Okay, we're going to change gun laws in this country. There's going to be a, a, a huge uprising. Yeah. Bigger problems than we have now. Well, you're a wet blanket, Greg. Jeez. My goodness. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I hope a little hope and optimism that people will wake up and, and again, mobilize. They can yeah. action themselves and not rely upon uh, agency. Hey, I'm going to link to your book. And, okay. I'm, and I'm given an order for everybody to buy this thing. I mean, I, I, I think of all my hiking friends, my brother-in-law and all of my friends that are avid hikers. My sister hikes. She's all, you know, late 70s. She hikes. And by the way, today's her birthday. Uh, my oldest sister is born. Oh, well, happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Sharon. And right. while Sharon was uh, having her sixth uh, grade uh, or six-year-old birthday party, my mother went into the hospital and had my second, uh, my the, her third child so two people have uh, two sisters have the exact same uh, birthday so oh, that was a birthday present well, happy birthday to so yeah. anyway what's so keep, good about this writing, right it it's 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 just it's just really it's great it's a it's your family story it's the outdoors it's all the hikes that most people in the northwest some have been on and then a little bit of um william o douglas who's quite a Quite a character, keep the glue that keeps it all together. So great book, Tom. Well, I had a ton of fun talking to you guys. There is a table of hikes at, at the back too, by the way. But right. I, I so enjoyed you guys. And I, unbelievable how, how much homework you do and how much reading you do and uh, how well, much that's, you knew just in preparation for this. Thank you. That's my that's my job now. That's well, a great work. Great job. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. All great right. Um, Thank you so much. All Come right. west, Greg. Uh, you come east. I'll come west. You come east. Right. Go west, young man. <laughs> There's a lot of forestry around here. A lot of hiking trails. Well, there is. You know, we did. We went up to uh, Linda and I did go up to the White Mountains. Had a great time. Good. Uh, no, there's you can you can hike all the way to D.C. from Pittsburgh now. That's that, right. That trail you sure can. Is open yeah. all the way, and so yeah. uh, a lot of you can walk up to Laurel Mountain. That's 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 a nice long hike, and you'd like it. You can walk along Laurel Ridge, cross the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I've done that before. Not for a long time, but yeah, you ought to come right. out east. You didn't All right, well, maybe, right. Pat, let's go east then. All right, hey, thanks. Thank you. Bye bye.